Hello, hello. Welcome to yet another episode of Time Travel Rock here on 90.3 KRNU. I am your host, Jackson Reddick, here on this Saturday evening from Anderson Hall in Lincoln, Nebraska, on the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where today I will be talking about one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time, that is Aerosmith. The Bostonian band is one of the better bands of all time. You know, they had a little bit of a different style. They played hard rock, but they had more of a blues rock as well, you know, rhythm-based, but led by their lead man, Steven Tyler, one of the most polarizing men in rock and roll, and he has just been throughout everywhere in the United States. Now he looks he looks like a different guy than... Uh, than he did back then he looks like all the rock and roll definitely took a toll on his body i'll just put it that way but as we start off with a little history of the band as in 1964 steven tyler formed his own band called the strangers which was later called chain reaction in yonkers new york meanwhile joe perry and tom hamilton were off doing their own things where they formed jam bam Jam Band, excuse me, commonly known as Joe Perry's Jam Band, which was based on the free form and a little bit of a bluesy style as well. Hamilton and Perry moved to Boston, Massachusetts in September of 1969. They met Joey Kramer, who was a drummer from Yonkers, New York. Kramer knew Tyler had always hoped to play in a band with him as Kramer, a Berklee College of Music graduate. He or actually he never even graduated. He left the school and joined the Jam Band. Born in 1970, Chain Reaction and Jam Band played at the same gig where Steven Tyler, you know, he really loved the Jam Band sound and he wanted to combine the two bands. In October of 1970, the bands met up and they considered the proposition, you know, it was something they wanted to think about at first, you know, uh, meeting up with a guy like Steven Tyler with the personality that he did, you know, it, was, it took some thought. Tyler, who had been a drummer and a backup singer in Chain Reaction, adamantly refused to play drums in the new band, insisting that he would take part only if he could be the frontman and the lead vocalist. The others agreed, and a new band was formed. This band moved home together at 1325 Commonwealth Avenue in Boston, where they wrote and rehearsed music together and relaxed in between their shows. You know, the formation of this band was just a bunch of dudes being dudes, basically. You know, that, that's how I look at it. <laughs> the members of the band reportedly spent their afternoons you know, doing some illegal things, watching Three Stooges, watching the Three Stooges on rerun. One day, they had a post Stooges meeting to come up to try to come up with a name. Kramer said that when he was in school, he would write the word Aerosmith all over his notebooks. The name had popped into his head after listening to Harry Nielsen's album Aerial Ballet, which featured jacket art of a circus performer jumping out of a biplane. Initially, Kramer's bandmates were unimpressed with the idea, and they all thought he was referring to the Sinclair Lewis novel that they were required to read in high school English. No, not Aerosmith, Kramer explained. A-E-R-O, Aerosmith. The band settled upon this name after also considering the Hookers and Spike Jones, two names that are absolutely terrible in retrospect. And I'm sure there probably was a rock and roll band at some point who probably wanted the name The Hookers, but uh, that just sounds terrible. And at some point prior to the weekend of December 25th, 1971, they were also known as Fox Chase, which again is a terrible, terrible name. 
Soon the band hired Ray Tabano, a childhood friend of Steven Tyler, as rhythm guitarist and began playing local shows. Aerosmith played their first gig in Menden, Massachusetts at Nipmuc Regional High School, which is now Misco Hill Middle School, on November 6, 1970. In 1971, Tabano was replaced by Brad Whitford, who also attended the Berklee School of Music and was formerly of the band Earth Incorporated. Whitford from Reading, Reading, Massachusetts, excuse me, had already played at Reading's A.W. Coolidge Middle School. Other from then a period of time in July 1979 to, to April 1984, the lineup of Tyler, Perry, Hamilton, Kramer, and Whitford has always stayed the same. Going into the band, you know, the, the peak years or the beginning of the peak years in 1971, they finalized their lineup, and they started to garner some real local success during their live shows at the schools that they played at or any other various venues. They originally booked through the Ed Malhoit Agency. The band signed a promotion deal with Frank Connolly and eventually secured a management deal with David Krebs and Steve Leber in 1972. Krebs and Leber invited Columbia Records president Clive Davis to see the band at Max's Kansas City in New York City. Aerosmith was not originally scheduled to play that night at the club, but they paid out of their own pockets to secure a place on the bill, reportedly the only band ever to do so at Max's. No surprise from their Night in the Ruts album celebrated their first moment of fame. Aerosmith signed with Columbia in mid-1972 for a reported $125,000, where they released their debut album, Aerosmith. Released in 1973, the album peaked at number 166, where the album was a straightforward rock and roll with well-defined blues influences, which laid the groundwork for Aerosmith's signature blues rock sound. Although the highest-charting single from the album was Dream On at number 59, several tracks such as Mama Kim and The Walkin' Dog would also become staple of the band's live shows and received plenty of airplay on rock and roll radio. The album reached gold status initially, eventually going on to sell 2 million copies and was certified double platinum after the band reached mainstream success over a decade later. After constant touring, the band released their second album, Get Your Wings, in 1974, the first of a string of multi-platinum albums produced by Jack Douglas. This contained several fan favorites, including Lord of the Thighs, Seasons of Wither, and S.O.S. Too Bad. Darker songs that have become staples in the band's live shows. To date, Get Your Wings has sold over 3 million copies. But going back to the band's first album, Aerosmith, going back to Dream On, that charted at number 59, such a great song. I mean, it is one of rock and roll's greatest hits, at least in my mind it is. The guitar is just so good in that song. And Steven Tyler, you really get to listen to how high of a voice that he has and the range that he has vocally. I mean, it really showed up in that first album. And frankly, on Dream On, I mean, it showed up there too. His vocal range is absolutely ridiculous. Steven Tyler showed it off and the rest of the band showed off how good they can be with this rock and roll classic. Here is Aerosmith's Dream On.
As for Aerosmith's third studio album that they released, Toys in the Attic, in 1975, you know, it really symbolized their coming of age or, or the fact that this was their album that said, okay, we're here now. As they were competing with Led Zeppelin, and, but they needed to get over the barrier of the media and people labeling them as a Rolling Stones knockoff. You know, that's what people really saw them as, as Mick Jagger and 
Steven Tyler, you know, they kind of had similar looks to each other. They sang kind of the same. It was one of those things that it was conflicting the two parts a little bit. But Toys in the Attic really showed off that they were their own style, their own success. Uh, Their single Sweet Emotion, which was the band's first top 40 hit ever, was followed by by a re-release of Dream On, which hit all the way up to number six, becoming their best charting single of the 1970s. And then Walk This Way, which was re-released in 1976, reached all the way to the top 10 in early 1977. So in addition to Toys in the Attic and Big Ten Inch Record, a song originally recorded by Bull Moose Jackson, those songs or they became concert staples. You know, as a result of this success, both of the band's previous albums recharted themselves. Toys in the Attic has gone on to become the band's best-selling studio album in the United States with certified U.S. sales of 9 million copies. The band toured in support of Toys in the Attic where they started to get more recognition. Also around this time, the band established their home base as the Warehouse in Waltham, Massachusetts, where they would record and rehearse music as well as conduct their business. But from that Toys in the Attic album, I am going to play Sweet Emotion. I'll play Walk This Way a little bit later on, but there's a special version that I'll play for that. But Sweet Emotion... Man, one of the best beginnings of a song you will ever find in rock and roll. You know, the sweet. I mean, that that beginning. Oh, it's so good, and it it just kind of plays throughout the rest of the song. You know, it, it goes to show that it is just such a great rock and roll hit, and that's really what it is. Aerosmith. They have so many songs that are so popular, but it's because they have staying power. They're relevant for a long time because these songs are just so good. And there's nothing wrong with these songs, which is the reason why they keep getting played over and over again on rock and roll radios to this day. I mean, the music that they made early on was just amazing. So here is Sweet Emotion by Aerosmith.
1976, Aerosmith released their fourth studio album, Rocks, which music historian Greg Prado has described as Aerosmith capturing their most raw and rocking sound. The album went platinum very easily and featured two top 40 hits, Last Child and Back in the Saddle, as well as the ballad Home Tonight, which also charted, but not the of the highest. Rocks would eventually go on to sell over 4 million copies. Both boys, or excuse me, both Toys in the Attic and Rocks are highly regarded, especially in the hard rock genre. They appear on such lists as Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time and are cited as influential by members of Guns N' Roses, Metallica, and Motley Crue. Kurt Cobain also lists Rocks as one of his albums that he thought were most influential to Nirvana's sound in his journal in 1993. And after Rocks was released, the band would tour extensively after it was released, headlining their own shows, including large stadiums and rock festivals. You know, the first time that they're really going out there. As in 1977, they released their fifth studio album, Draw the Line. Its recording was affected by the band's excesses, but the record still had its memorable moments. The title track charted just shy of the top 40 and remains a live staple, and Kings and Queens also charted as well. The album went on to sell 2 million copies total, and the band toured extensively in support of the album, but drug abuse and the fast-paced life of touring and recording began affecting their performances. Tyler and Perry became known as the Toxic Twins due to their notorious abuse of drugs on and off of the stage. Tyler later commented, I've spent $64 million on drugs. Perry scoffed later, there's no effing way in the world you could spend that much money on drugs and still be alive. It makes a good headline, but practically speaking, that was probably a very small portion of where we spent our money. While continuing to tour and record in the late 1970s, Aerosmith appeared in the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band movie. The cover of the Beatles' Come Together from the soundtrack was also the band's last top 40 hit for almost nearly 10 years. The double vinyl live bootleg issued in 1978 captured the band's rawness during the Draw the Line tour. The standalone single Chip Away the Stone also released in 1978, charting at number 77. I'm going to play a couple of songs... I'll play one song from the live bootleg tour and then one from Rocks as well. I believe from Rocks, I, I want to play Home Tonight, the ballad that was the last song on that album, but it is just such a good, raw, emotional song. And from the live bootleg tour, let me take a look and see at that album. I got to decide what, uh, what song I want to play because they have so many great songs on that album, you know, from the early years that... You know, it's hard to pick sometimes, you know, when playing songs and when on this show, when I pick songs, it is tough to pick a song to play. Oh, let's see here. Let's see. I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to play. I think I'm going to play back. I'll play back in the saddle live from the bootleg album. So those are the two songs you'll hear back to back. First off, Home Tonight from the Rocks album and then Back in the Saddle from Live Bootleg.
as per any rock and roll band in the 70s, 80s, or 90s, Aerosmith went through tumultuous times. In 1979, they started work on their next album, Night in the Ruts, but they decided to go on tour to break up their recording schedule. As in the decade was about to conclude, the band's drug use really, really took its toll on the members. The, the band's touring schedule brought them to Cleveland Stadium on July 28, 1979, where they were headlining the World Series of Rock Festival. Pandemonium erupted backstage when Joe Perry's wife, Alyssa, threw a glass of milk at Tom Hamilton's wife, Terry. Following the show, Tyler and Perry got into a heated argument when Tyler confronted Perry about his wife's antics, and after the course of the argument, Perry left Aerosmith. While Tyler claims in his autobiography that he fired Perry from the band, upon his departure, Perry took some of the music that he had written with him. Shortly after his departure, Perry formed his own side project known as the Joe Perry Project. Since there was still work to be done on Nine in the Ruts, Aerosmith needed fill-in musicians to take Perry's place on the songs that needed to be recorded to fully complete the album. Guitarist Brad Whitford took over some of the lead parts, and Richie Supa, the band's longtime writing partner, filled in where he needed to be until the band was able to hire Jimmy Crespo to take over as the next-time full guitarist. Night in the Ruts was released in November 1979, but only managed to sell enough records to be certified gold at the time, although it would eventually sell enough copies to be certified platinum by 1994. The only single the album spawned was Remember Walking in the Sand by Shangri-Las, or Shangri-Las, which peaked at number 96 or on number 67, excuse me, on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. The tour for the Night in the Ruts commenced shortly thereafter, but the band found themselves playing in smaller and smaller venues due just to their lack of popularity. You know, the popularity was slowly going downhill as the band was finding themselves dealing with more issues. Steven Tyler's drug issues were starting to affect his performance, singing, and songwriting, and he reached rock bottom in 1980 when he collapsed on stage during a show in Portland, Maine, and did not get up for the remainder of the set. Also in 1980, Aerosmith released their first compilation album, which, you know, when a band releases compilation albums, you know that things are not going well because they need to make money. They released their compilation album, Greatest Hits, which, while it didn't chart very high initially, it gained enough popularity to where it went on to become the band's best-selling album in the United States, selling 12 million total copies. In the fall of 1980, Tyler was injured in a serious motorcycle accident, which left him hospitalized for two months and unable to tour or record well into 1981. In 1981, Aerosmith began work on their next album, Rock in a Hard Place, which saw them reunite with producer Jack Douglas. However, after the first song for the album, Lightning Strikes, was recorded, Brad Whitford left the band and formed a duo with Derek St. Holmes, with whom he recorded a self-titled album. which really failed to garner much interest, Whitford later joined up with the Joe Perry Project and played with them in 1984. With Rick Dufay taking Whitford's place, Rock in a Hard Place was released on August 27, 1982. The album reached number 32 on the Billboard 200 album chart. Only one, chart, only one single charted the aforementioned Lightning Strikes, which peaked at number 21 in the Billboard Mainstream Rock chart. As for the tour with Night in the Ruts, Aerosmith was unable to book larger venues and instead had to rely on filling clubs and theaters, which they struggled to do. After a homecoming at the Arena Show in Worcester, Massachusetts, Tyler and Perry reunited and got high backstage before the show, which, you know, if you need to solve some problems, I guess you do that. Tyler was so intoxicated that he collapsed on stage again and, like before, could not get up. On February 14, 1984, Perry, with by then his had divorced from his first wife, Alyssa, 
and Whitford saw Aerosmith perform at Boston's Orpheum Theater. Shortly thereafter, discussions began to reintegrate the two into the band, and several months later, the original members of Aerosmith officially reunited. Steven Tyler recalls, You should have felt the buzz the moment all five of us got together in the same room for the first time again. We all started laughing. It was like the five years had never passed. We knew we had made the right move. Which, the Back in the Saddle reunion tour in 1984 embarked the, the new journey for Aerosmith, which led to the live album Classics Live 2. With WoW concerts on the tour well attended, it was plagued with several incidents mostly attributed to drug abuse by band members. With, with their drug problem still not being behind them, the, groom, the group was signed to Geffen Records and began working on a comeback. Despite the band signing on to a new record company, the band's old label, Columbia, continued to reap the benefits of Aerosmith's comeback, releasing the live companion albums Classics Live 1 and 2 and the collection Gems. In 1985, the band released the album Done With Mirrors, their first studio album since reuniting. While the album did not did receive some positive news, it was only went gold and failed to produce a, hit, a single hit song or generate any widespread interest. The album's most notable track, Let the Music Do the Talking, was in fact a cover of an original song recorded by the Joe Perry Project, which was then released on that band's next album of the same name. Nevertheless, the band became a popular concert attraction once again, touring in support of Done With Mirrors, well into the 1980s. In 1986, in an unprecedented crossover collaboration, Aerosmith largely... The additional contributions of the leader, Tyler, and Perry appear on Run DMC's cover of Walk This Way, a track which blended rock and roll and hip-hop together. It reached number four in the Billboard Hot 100, and the song is frequently aired, and the song, which had aired a video resurrection of Aerosmith's career by introducing the band to a new generation of an audience. You know, it really got Aerosmith their... I guess, kicking the butt back into the mainstream media, into the mainstream world. I mean, they needed it. They really did not have a, a calling at that point. They didn't really have an audience. And when they mixed together Run DMC, the world went, oh, Steven Tyler, you know, they're back. You know, they're actually a band again. And that's why I didn't, I wanted to wait to play Walk This Way because I wanted to play it with the Run DMC version because it is such an influential song in rock and roll history due to the fact that you have two completely different styles mixing with each other. And you'll hear it right now as Walk This Way with Aerosmith and Run DMC combined together.
Even after the release of Walk This Way with Aerosmith, the band still had their problems they had to deal with. The band members' drug problems really still was a roadblock in the way. As in 1986, Steven Tyler completed a successful drug rehabilitation program after an intervention by his fellow band members, a doctor and manager, Tim Collins, who they believed that the band's future would be bright, would not be bright if he did not do this. The rest of the band members also completed drug rehab programs over the course of the next couple of years. According to the band's tell-all autobiography, Collins pledged in September of 1986 that he could make Aerosmith the biggest band in the world by 1990 if they all completed drug rehab. Their next album was crucial because of the commercial disappointment of Done With Mirrors, and as the band members became clean, they worked hard to make their next album a success. Permanent Vacation was released in, 19, in August 1987, becoming a major hit in the band's best-selling album in over a decade which sold over 5 million copies in the U.S., with all three of its hit singles, Dude Looks Like a Lady, Angel, and Ragdoll, reaching the top 20 of the Billboard Hot 100. Steven Tyler reveals in his autobiography that the album was the first one we ever did sober. Part of Permanent Vacation's commercial success involved producer Bruce Fairburn, which, whose production touches, you know, little soft sound effects and high-quality recording, added interest to the album in the use of outside songwriters such as Desmond Child, Jim Valance, and Holly Knight, who assisted the band with lyrical units. While the group was initially hesitant to using outside songwriters, including Tyler being furious for Knight getting songwriting credits for changing one word, Ragtime became Ragdoll, the method paid off as Permanent Vacation became the band's most successful album in the decade, as stated previous. The group went on with a subsequent tour with label mates Guns N' Roses, who have cited Aerosmith as a major influence to them, which was an intense at times because of Aerosmith's new struggle to stay clean amidst Guns N' Roses' well-publicized rampant drug use. You know, that has to be such a wild mix. A band who is trying to get clean because they know if they don't, their careers will fall off, and then people like Guns N' Roses who, you know, whatever, they don't care. It is crazy, but... I will play one song off of that album. I will play Dude Looks Like a Lady. Such a good song. It is just like constantly like that because, I mean, I'm sure the band, when they released that song, I'm sure a lot of people thought that the band members, you know, that's probably what they heard from people. You know, Steven Tyler, he had longer hair, and, and that's probably what people were saying to him. So, I mean, I could probably see why they made this song, but here is Dude Looks Like a Lady by Aerosmith.
the next album that Aerosmith released was probably their greatest album of all time. That was Pump, released in September of 1989, which featured three top ten singles, Love in an Elevator, Janie's Got a Gun, and What It Takes, as well as the top 30 hit, The Other Side, reestablishing themselves as a serious musical force. Pump was a critical and commercial success, eventually selling 7 million copies, spawning several music videos that were in the regular rotation on MTV, and achieved four-star ratings from major music magazines. Pump ranked as the fourth best-selling album of 1990. The band also won its first Grammy in the category of Best Rock Performance by a duo or group with vocal for Janie's Got a Gun. In addition, the video for Janie's Got a Gun won two VMA awards and was ranked as one of the 100 greatest videos of all time by the Rolling Stone, MTV, and VH1. Like Permanent Vacation, Pump was produced by Bruce Fairbairn, who added production touches such as instrumental interludes that provided transition between songs to give the album a more complete sound, as well as the Margarita Horns, who added horns to tracks such as Love in an Elevator and The Other Side. Rock critic Stephen Thomas Earlwine claimed that Pump revels in pop concessions without ever losing sight of Aerosmith's dirty hard rock core, going on to say that such ambition and successful musical eclecticism make Pump rank with Toys in the Attic and Rocks. The recording process for Pump was documented in the video The Making of Pump, which has been re-released as a DVD. The music videos for the album's singles were featured on the release Things That Go Pump in the Night, which quickly went platinum. In support of Pump, the band embarked on a 12-month Pump tour, which lasted for most of 1990. On February 21, 1990, the band appeared in a Wayne's World sketch on Saturday Night Live, debating the fall of communism in the Soviet Union and performing their recent hits Janie's Got a Gun and Monkey on My Back. The appearance of the band in Wayne's World sketch was later ranked by E! Magazine as the number one moment in the history of the program. On August 11, 1990, the band's performance of MTV's Unplugged aired. In October 1990, the Pump Tour ended with the band's first ever performances in Australia. That same year, the band was also inducted to the Hollywood Rock Wall. As of November 1991, the band appeared on The Simpsons episode Flaming Moe's and released a box set titled Pandora's Box. In coordination with the release of Pandora's Box, the band's 1975 hit Sweet Emotion was remixed and re-released as a single. And a music video was then created to promote the single. Also in 1991, the band performed their 1973 single, Dream On, with Michael Kamen's orchestra for MTV's 10th anniversary special. The performance was used as the official music video for the song. In 1992, Tyler and Perry appeared as live guests of Guns N' Roses' tour in the latter parts of 1992 in their worldwide pay-per-view show in Paris, performing a medley of Mama Kin, which Guns N' Roses covered in 1986, and Train kept a rolling. You know, the band really saw a, a large you know, upkick of success between 1987 and 1991, you know, it really cemented Aerosmith back on the rock and roll stage. I, I am going to play, you know, really have a whole lot of time left here is that Aerosmith has such been, a, been such a good time talking about them. I, I do want to play the other side. I think it is one of their better songs that they've made. I mean, Love in an Elevator and Janie's Got a Gun are really good. You know, the vocal talent of Steven Tyler and Janie's Got a Gun in all of the surrounding you know backup noise is so good but i want to play the other side the beginning of it with the uh, the acoustic guitar so so well done i think it's one of their better songs of all time so here is the other side by aerosmith
They went on to really have successful careers post the Pump album, but just kind of run out of time. Just kind of wanted to run through some 
Fun fact is in 1999, Aerosmith was chosen to be featured in the rock and roll coaster starring Aerosmith at Disney World, which provided the ride soundtrack and theme at both Disney's Hollywood Studios and Walt Disney World Resort, and formerly at Disneyland Paris in the Walt Studio Disney's Park, which opened in 2002 and closed in 2019, which was replaced by an Iron Man and the Avengers attraction in the upcoming Avengers Campus. You know, that's changed in... In California, you don't know about Florida yet, but man, the, just the giant guitar outside and all of the bands, that kind of equipment in there, it's such a cool, you know, just little thing. Uh, September 9th, 1999, Steven Tyler and Joe Perry reunited with Run DMC and were also joined by Kid Rock for a collaborative live performance of Walk This Way at the MTV Video Music Awards, a precursor uh, to their summer to their tour that they were just about to play. The band celebrated the new millennium with a brief tour of Japan, which is a fun place to go tour to start off 2000, and also contributed the song Angel's Eye to the 2000 film Charlie's Angels. As in December 2000, they wrapped up the work for their next album that they were doing at the time. As the year 2002 proved to be a very busy year for the band, as they just ended their Just Push Play tour while they were recording segments for their Behind the Music special on VH1, they also in May, covered the theme from Spider-Man for the soundtrack of the 2002 film. And on June 27th, the band performed at the official FIFA World Cup concert at Tokyo Stadium, which took place during the 02 FIFA World Cup held in Korea and Japan. And in July 2002, Aerosmith released a two-disc career-spanning compilation, Oh Yeah! Ultimate Aerosmith Hits, which featured the new single Girls of Summer and embarked on the Girls of Summer tour with Kid Rock and Run DMC opening up. Oh Yeah has since been certified double platinum, where then MTV honored Aerosmith with their own MTV Elcon Award in 2002. Performances included Pink covering Janie's Got a Gun, Shakira performed Dude Looks Like a Lady, Kid Rock played Mama Kin and Last Child, Train performed Dream On, and Papa Roach covered Sweet Emotion. In addition, testimonials were given by surprise guests Metallica, Janet Jackson, Limp Biscuit singer Fred Durst, Alicia Silverstone, and Mila Kunis. And just another super cool and fun fact. I mean, how could you not, you know, feel pretty cool about this? As on November 1st, 2007, as the band entered the studio to work on the final studio album of their current contract with Sony, Joe Perry, you know, revealed that in addition to creating that new album, the band was working closely with the makers of the Guitar Hero series to develop Guitar Hero Aerosmith, a video game dedicated to just the band's music. The game was released on June 29th, 2008, and contains many of their most popular songs. That's just, that's so awesome. I mean, imagine such a huge game as Guitar Hero, but you're so popular. You're like, you know, we're just going to make our own, you know, game of our music on here. That's just so awesome. I mean, it's so cool. But, you know, I think that's really going to be about all the time that we have here on Time Travel Rock. Thank you very much for tuning in for this Aerosmith episode. You know, I love listening to their music, and all the songs I played for you today are songs that I love and songs that I enjoy and will listen to at any time of the day at any in any, you know, mood that I'm in. You know, these songs are so good. But Jackson Reddick here on the mic here at Anderson Hall in Lincoln, Nebraska on this Saturday evening. I hope you have a great rest of your night. Once again, this has been Time Travel Rock on 90.3 KRNU.